Hi, this is Benjamin Joff, partner at SOSV. We invest in early-stage startups with a focus on deep tech, ranging from cellular agriculture to neurotech and service robots. In this podcast, startup founders and investors tell us how innovation can go from lab to market. This episode is a recording of a live event with three investors who funded collectively dozens of startups combating the pandemic with solutions for prevention, testing, and treatment. This is the podcast version, so if you want visuals, check the YouTube video or the slides on SlideShare in the description. The event starts with an introduction covering non-biotech solutions, from 3D printing to disinfection robots. After this, each speaker introduces a handful of examples from their portfolio. We think there's a lot of opportunity for companies to build things that directly address this that are bringing us value for a long time. The first speaker is Seth Bannon, founding partner of 50 Years, an early stage deep tech VC and previous guest on our podcast. He offers an interesting perspective comparing the pandemic to World War II on the many innovations it ushered. I do think there are opportunities for specific tailwinds in how healthcare is delivered that may unlock successful business in ways that they wouldn't in the past. The second speaker is Alex Morgan, a partner at Cosla Ventures and Stanford Genomics PhD. In addition to some of the solutions Cosla funded, Alex talks about the future of distributed care, in particular its application to mental health in the wake of the COVID pandemic. The pandemic, an ongoing investable thesis now. We're having more and more pandemics, more and more outbreaks. So how does that change your view of what you want to invest in? Finally, June Axup, Chief Science Officer and partner at IndieBio, the Life Sciences Accelerator Program from SOSV, talks about some very recent investments and pivots and ponders the many unknowns linked to this unique moment of the biotech renaissance. Following those, we have a short Q&A with Julie Wolf, a microbiology PhD and communications director of IndieBio in New York City. I hope you enjoyed this format. As usual, feedback is much welcome by email at ben at sosv.com or on Twitter at lab2market. To get started, here's a, a few ideas uh, about the agenda, who we are, and what this session will be all about. So I'll do a very quick introduction, and then uh, each of our speakers will give a few minutes of review of their most relevant portfolio companies. So the reason we have those three speakers today is because each of their funds has actually invested in a handful of companies, and they posted online each a long list uh, explaining uh, in the different aspects through which uh, their companies are addressing the problems associated with, uh, with COVID, particularly in uh, prevention, in treatment, and in testing. Then we'll have some Q&A time and uh, we'll try to finish sharp on the hour. My co-host Julie Wolf will be moderating the panel. She's a communications director at IndieBio on Life Science Accelerator. Myself, I'm a partner at SOSV. To get started, I'd like to share with you a few interesting deep tech innovation that happened under COVID-19. Some of them were intended for COVID, some of them were pivots from other things. And uh, most of the examples I'm going to share now are not related to biotech because that's what we're mostly going to be talking about during the panel. First few words about us. SOSV is an early stage deep tech fund. We have uh, over $700 million under management. We just passed the thousand startups we invested in. We invest through our accelerator programs in about 150 companies a year, particularly in life science, intelligent hardware, food, and also cross-border companies between the West and Asia. Some examples of a portfolio company. Maybe you're familiar with uh, Memphis Meats, automated inventory robot for retail, a holographic display, and a company doing a brain stimulation that is also part of the Cosla portfolio. So what changed between uh, 2003 and SARS and COVID-19? Uh, among the things that changed is the availability of very low-cost genetic tests that allowed to uh, sequence uh, the virus very early, but also availability of sensors, robots, and cloud solutions. The challenges of all the solutions being developed is, of course, the cost, uh, but also the timing. What if some solutions come in too late? What if it's not relevant by the time it arrives? And then the scale. If a solution works on a small scale, it's not that useful. 
I'll give a few examples through prevention, testing, and treatment, starting with prevention. So this is what prevention looked like about 100 years ago, basically people wearing masks, or as the science says, uh, going to jail if you don't wear a mask. But today we have a lot of other technologies at hand. So for example, a company called Formlabs is able to 3D print swabs uh, that can be used for COVID testing, 200 units on a single print. You have to be a bit careful also when you think about 3D printing everything because uh, there were some attempts at trying to you know, 3D print shields, but sometimes 3D printing is just not the scalable solution for some of the equipment we need. A few other examples of things that were made uh, using Formlabs, they're sharing uh, the designs. Uh, they have a network of volunteers with over 5,000 printers that can help make all those things. Within our portfolio, I give a few examples that uh, will not be too much developed later, but uh, another way to prevent uh, getting sick is to get better masks where you can actually breathe and that actually block the virus. The virus is very small and most of the masks are actually not that effective for such a small virus. This company called Vertex uh, makes a new breathable material that actually blocks it. Reducing touching your face is also a good way to reduce chances of infection. This company that was uh, initially targeting body-focused repetitive behaviors uh, found uh, an interesting opportunity, uh, allowing the device to recognize the gesture of touching your face to give you an alert to help prevent it. In the new world, we also need to disinfect things uh, very frequently and very thoroughly. Floors is one thing, and this company called Avidbots, part of our portfolio, has been uh, providing those robots to airports and other uh, commercial venues. And by adding disinfectant, they're now COVID compliant and seeing great demand. Another one that just uh, making some uh, announcements recently is a company doing a dry cleaning robot. What's interesting about them is that initially they were intended for hotel venues and business travelers, but they're now finding an application on TV and movie sets who are trying to reopen that will need to also clean and disinfect all the costumes. So now they can do it on site much faster. So maybe robots will save Hollywood and uh, your favorite Netflix show. Uh, another very interesting robot, and that's probably the generation after Avidbots, which is already like a five, six-year-old company. Uh, this one is very recent, and it's a robot that can clean toilets. So toilets are quite complex to clean because of their geometry, uh, meaning not just the floor, but actually the bowl on the environment. And uh, this company uses uh, 3D scanning and uh, a, a robotic arm to be able to do that at fairly low cost. Disinfecting areas, also important, another company in our portfolio, uh, this time in China. They were doing logistics robots, and then they realized that on the logistics base, they could just plug in some uh, UVC lights and infrared camera and do both disinfection and detection, ideally not at the same time. What's interesting is that thanks to the speed of the supply chain in Shenzhen, they were able to actually build a first prototype in about two weeks and ship the first units just a couple of weeks later. And they now have dozens of robots deployed. Here's another company uh, initially intended for surveillance, uh, particularly on outside of premises. And uh, what they're trying to do is uh, precision disinfection. Many places, what you want to actually disinfect is the high touch areas rather than everything. And uh, also the problem of having a powerful UVC light in an office that nobody can work is very dangerous. So everybody has to be out or it has to be at night. Testing. There's a lot of initiatives. Maybe you've come across this news about the smart helmets with infrared sensors. So deployed in, uh, in some cities in China. In two minutes, they're able to scan a queue of about 100 people. So it's very efficient. Those solutions have been deployed in other locations. You might have seen also those testing booths in South Korea initially, and then uh, spread into other geographies, uh, Israel, India. You might have seen also devices like this one. Uh, it's a smart ring that uh, tracks uh, sleep, temperature, activity, and uh, heart rate variability. They're able to detect uh, the very early signs of COVID infection pre-symptom. One company in the portfolio called Stratos Labs also does uh, some monitoring of either recovering patients or patients at risk uh, using this e-stethoscope.
Last, on treatment side, there's a lot of aspects to treatment. Vaccine is, you could say, prevention rather than treatment, but that's a, a big area. There's uh, treating the virus, treating the inflammation, which is your immune response post-infection, and helping also to treat during the recovery. Bill Gates has been uh, very vocal and also very active around this, and he's now spending billions to build factories for the most promising vaccine candidates. A lot of pharmaceutical companies and also startups are trying to find either new drugs or repurpose existing drugs to get faster go-to-market. There's other interesting applications of devices. So Decathlon, which is a sports goods retailer, found that uh, some people hacked repurposed their snorkeling mask. Decathlon decided to offer all their masks to the hospital in needs. Some other researchers and engineers in UC Berkeley and the doctors are looking at repurposing sleep apnea machines into lightweight ventilators to free the more heavy-duty ones. And then you have other systems like this single patient isolation and transport system called the EPI shuttle. Last, we're probably on the brink of a mental health pandemic that follows those months of isolation, loneliness, and also due to the economic impact of the people who lost their jobs. This is a device that can help monitor emotions and guide people toward better mental health and recovery. That's all I have for the introduction. Julie, if you want to introduce the speakers. So we're just going to have a short presentation from each of our panelists about the portfolio companies and what they are doing to fight COVID. Uh, we'll start with Seth Bannon, the founding partner at 50 Years. Thanks to the SOSV team and the bio team for organizing this. I think it's a really obviously critical issue at a critical time. This is obviously a super unique time in history. You know, we've, we've tried to come up with comparisons to other points in history where we faced such a large threat to see if we could draw comparisons to how the entrepreneurial community and, and government and, and sort of financial community responded. And, and I think the closest that we could come up to in modern history was, was World War II. And I don't think it's a, it's a very dramatic comparison because if you look at the scale of the two threats, they're actually quite similar, right? You know, middle of the road epidemiological models for COVID-19, if nothing was done, put the potential deaths in the tens of millions. Luckily, we are doing things. Uh, governments are instituting shelter in place orders and, and, and people are social distancing, but um, the threat is still there. And those sorts of things are band-aids, right? We can't shelter in place forever. We're seeing the, how the economy is struggling. And so the, the solution to this problem is really going to be a, a technical solution. If you look at what happened during World War II, it actually is quite inspiring. Um, you know, during World War II, the technology community rallied like never before to, to win that cause. And if you look at what came out of it, we, we got mass production of antibiotics. We got blood plasma as a therapeutic for the first time. We got skin grafts. We got the first flu vaccine actually came out of that effort. We got radar and the microwave oven. Uh, we got pressurized plane cabins. Uh, we got nuclear power and, you know, the first programmable digital computer. And so in the effort to, to win that war, we ended up laying the foundation of technical progress for many years to come. And so, you know, we think that we need that sort of energy again now. If we rally like we did then, we can not only beat back this pandemic, but we can end up building things that are incredibly valuable, both from a society level and from a financial perspective uh, in the decades to come. And so we have encouraged all of our portfolio companies to, if they think they can contribute to solving this crisis, to, to do so. You know, normally we encourage our, our founders to be incredibly focused, keep heads down with the thing they're building and put aside any other opportunities except for the biggest one. But I think times like these call for sort of extraordinary measures. And so we've been incredibly proud that 17 of our, of our portfolio companies have answered the call and are actually directly contributing to some aspect of this pandemic. Uh, we looked at some of the things that were built during World War II, and one of the problems that was faced back then, you might, you might call this problem the, the scaling up testing problem of World War II, was scaling up our warship capacity. 
Um, at that point, it took about a year to build a naval warship. And this was obviously not a good turnaround time, given the scale of, of the need. And so the government challenged entrepreneurs to figure out a better way of building ships. A guy named Henry Kaiser, who at that point was the father of American shipbuilding. And he built a new shipyard in California with a radically different manufacturing technique where each part of the ship was actually constructed somewhere else and then essentially snapped together on the shipyard. And he was able to reduce uh, the time to build a naval warship to five days, from one year to five days. And there was actually a naval warship built and launched and went into war in five days. That technology helped win the war, but it was also really valuable after. If you could build a, a ship in five days, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, and that turned into a, a shipbuilding empire for him. He then got into aluminum and steel uh, and ended up founding uh, Kaiser Permanente, which is one of the largest healthcare providers in the country. So we actually, we put all of our portfolio companies addressing this on our website. So if you go to 50years.com slash COVID, um, you can actually see a, a list of all the companies uh, addressing all different aspects of this, everything from, from vaccines to scaling up testing to uh, making PPE to literally just, you know, uh, delivering hand sanitizer to hospitals in need. Uh, I'm just going to run through a few of the ones that I think are most interesting. So I think the most ambitious one by, by far is um, a company called Helix Nano. So this is a spin out out of the George Church Lab. Um, and they had previously been focusing on mRNA uh, vaccines for cancer. Um, and a lot of the problems that they uh, solved in terms of combating cancer are incredibly applicable to a virus like uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, and the reason it is, uh, is because viruses uh, evolve. We've actually already seen some evolution in SARS-CoV-2. Um, this is the reason that we need to get a new flu vaccine every year is because each year influenza, the influenza strains that are out there are slightly different due to mutations from the year before. Um, and so there's a lot of people that are worried that if we come up with a SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, uh, it might protect us this season and then it might roar back next season with a variant that uh, the um, vaccine does not cover. And so Helix Nano actually has an approach that allows them to um, attack multi-antigens with a single mRNA vaccine. So I would say it's most similar to Moderna, um, but with a built-in defense, Moderna's approach, but with a built-in defense against uh, evolution. Um, and they've actually done some really interesting uh, research um, uh, in collaboration with some other folks on, um, on the, the rate of evolution. And it's actually quite, quite uh, quick with, with, with this strain of SARS-CoV-2. -CoV um, and uh, th this uh, antigenic drift leads to potentially these vaccines that we're developing losing their efficacy, potentially even across one season, but the real risk is, is season to season. Um, and so we think this is uh, really the only approach we've seen actually that, that can essentially be what's called a dirty vaccine, uh, meaning that it can cover many different variants of, of, of the virus. Um, so uh, that is on the vaccine front. Uh, I think on the, on the testing front, this is clearly an issue if you look at every single country that has been able to start to relieve restrictions on the economy without seeing huge flare-ups. Uh, they test, 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 test. Um, I think we simply don't have the testing capacity uh, yet in the United States to be able to, to test to the extent that we need to. Um, and one of the reasons is just that the current tests require you know, RNA extraction and qPCR and, and these long, expensive procedures um, on next generation sequencers, which we don't have that many of in this country. Um, uh, Billion to One, uh, which is a, a company that uh, actually focuses on, on prenatal uh, diagnostics, and actually have a product in market addressing that, figured out a way of running a SARS-CoV-2 test on Sanger sequencers. So Sanger sequencers are 
uh, are essentially um, uh, the, the pre-Illumina way we used to do sequencing. Um, there's a lot of these machines uh, out there already. Um, and uh, Billion to One figured out a, a protocol that allows a SARS-CoV-2 um, test to be run on these machines, incredibly low cost, incredibly high volume. Uh, they can actually, with this protocol, you can take a 2,000 square foot lab, uh, put four million four million of capital into it, and 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 that would have a testing capacity of 100,000 tests per day. Um, they have already started to roll this out with some of the largest labs in uh, Brazil uh, and Jordan and Israel, um, and are on path to 10x 10xing the testing capacity of of those countries. Um, they applied for an uh, emergency youth authorization with the FDA a couple weeks ago, and those conversations are going pretty well. So I'm pretty hopeful that we'll see this in the United States uh, soon. Um, so also on the te testing front, a completely different approach. Um, one of our portfolio companies, I think this is one portfolio company that we all share here. Uh, this is a, a, a Kosla company, right. a company, a bio company. Um, it's a company called Opentron. So Opentron builds cheap lab automation. They basically, starting with pipetting. So, you know, you, you, if you go into any wet lab, you'll see PhDs and postdocs with eight years of training from the top institutions in the world just sitting there doing this, moving liquid from one plate to another. Opentrons builds a $4,000 machine. You can literally put it on the lab credit card that just does all that pipetting for, for the scientists so that they can focus on the real science. Um, and so they figured out a way of taking some of the most annoying things with uh, running SARS-CoV-2 tests on uh, next generation sequencers um, and, uh, and basically automating those things. And so if we scroll down, you can see here that, you know, this is the general workflow at, for, for, for uh, running a test with qPCR right now. Uh, and they figured out a, a way of, of, of um, automating many of the bottlenecks here. Um, one of the really cool things that I just want to share, oops, sorry, here, it's over here. So this made us really proud. So we had been bragging to other portfolio companies uh, about uh, the fact that OpenTrans had figured this out. And we were telling one of our uh, portfolio companies called Multiply Labs, which is also a, a robotic startup. They, 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 they uh, automate the manufacture of personalized uh, medicine. Um, and uh, one of their um, co-founders was in Italy. She's Italian. She was stuck in Italy. Um, uh, because, you know, the lockdown happened uh, uh, while she was there, and she didn't want to uh, just do nothing, and so she heard about Opentron, she contacted some labs in Italy, got a bunch of Opentron, shipped them over, and now Opentron is being used at several lab, three labs in Italy to actually scale up their testing capacity. Um, and I just love this because it's an example of one portfolio company helping another portfolio company. Unfortunately, the only press right now is in Italian, but you have to trust me, it's really, really cool. Um, so that's, that's testing. I think obviously we've all heard a lot about person, you know, personalized, personal protective equipment. Um, this is a really a cool example of how a company just took their existing capacity and said, we are going to direct it entirely for something that is really, really important. This is one of our companies called Voodoo Manufacturing. They basically have a cloud farm of, of all sorts of different 3D printers. Uh, they normally make parts and things for medical equipment and, 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 and other things. Um, they literally have redirected their entire team to focusing on, on this PPE issue, and they're doing it at, at cost. So they are making no profit off of this. They just realized that they had the capacity to solve one of the key problems that this country is facing and decided it's just the right thing to do for us to, to, to open up our capacity. And so they're, they're making things like protective face shields and, and the nasal fungal uh, test swabs, which were a huge uh, bottleneck at some point. Um, and another example of one of our companies that's doing things just 
sort of on, on a purely philanthropic way, which we also really, really support. Uh, one of our companies called Solugen, they're based in, in Houston, Texas. They enzymatically make industrial chemicals, starting with hydrogen peroxide. It's a much more sustainable, uh, much more economical way of manufacturing chemicals. They realized that they had everything they needed to make hand sanitizer. And so they are making hand sanitizer and just shipping it pro bono to hospitals in need. Uh, this is an example of, of, uh, of uh, a great uh, organization called Operation USA, which is helping get PPE to, um, uh, to where it's needed, uh, accepting a, a shipment from, from Solagen. Again, the last two purely philanthropic efforts. And so we think what's really interesting is that we've seen the entrepreneurial community not only come up with solutions that can solve this crisis and be incredibly profitable, but we've also seen a lot of companies take their very scarce uh, time and money resources to use it to contribute to solving this in a way that is not for profit. And normally we only like our companies doing things that are for profit, but when a pandemic like this occurs, we think the right thing to do is to chip in if you can. Thank you, Seth. Uh, that was really interesting. And there's certainly a lot of different areas that the companies are um, attacking COVID, uh, both the testing, the treatment, and the prevention, as you're, as you're demonstrating. Uh, Alex, partner at Kosla Ventures, is going to present some of his portfolio companies as well. Thank you for a nice intro. Uh, and I hope everyone and their loved ones are safe and sound. I was asked to talk a little bit about our what we do what are what some of our portfolio companies are doing in response to the the pandemic? Um, so we have a venture fund um, that invests broadly in technology. A little over five billion under management, currently under investing out of a billion dollar main fund and roughly four hundred million dollars seed fund. And our mission statement for the current fund is around reinventing societal infrastructure with technology. For us, that means looking for investments that have positive social benefit, but have the opportunity to be a profit-making enterprise. And so examples would be Impossible Foods, which we did as a clean tech investment. We have significant investments in space, uh, automation, agriculture, uh, and other areas. But biotech, healthcare, it's a big part of what we do with companies like Color, Gardened uh, Alive Core. And certainly that's become quite relevant in response to COVID. Uh, we have a number of companies responding in, in a variety of ways, and I'll share in the in the chat section a link to this post that describes many of them, but I'll profile just a couple to get a flavor. One is a company called Genolite that has technology based on these optical ring resonators that you can put on a, on a single chip. You can pack hundreds of them there on there. It's FDA approved as a diagnostic device. It's been described as Theranos, but it works. It can deliver results in 15 minutes for a, a vast range of analytes. Not everything that you'd want to do in a, in a clinical lab, but many tests, in fact, the majority of things that you'd want to do in a clinical lab, they've developed their own serology testing for IgG and IgM against 12 unique antigens in SARS-CoV-2. Right now, their max capacity for the deployed devices uh, is about 250,000 patients a month, but they're ramping up production, and we hope by the fall to be several million patients per month capacity. And they're working in collaboration with Collective Health. And so one of the, the, you know, the big needs right now, and the question is, how do you plan a back-to-work program and, and how do you stage that? And they're working as a, as a diagnostic component to that program. Kind of switching more or less from an LDT model to a, a very portable point-of-care device, Luminostics has a nanoparticle-based technology that actually can enable a mobile phone to detect very, to quantify very difficult to, to detect pathogens. Um, they've done done the demonstrated this at a clinical trial for chlamydia, which is very not one of the pathogens that you can do point of care otherwise, and has significant advantages in sensitivity, specificity over color metric lateral flow, which a lot of groups are, are working on with much better quantification, which will be important if we're, we're actually trying to figure out likely resistance. Uh, and they're working on point of care IgG and IgM serology as well. 
switching from diagnostics to therapeutics now with Uriel Patton and Lee Arnold from Assembly Biosciences. And they're working on an approach to specifically targeting coronavirus proteases necessary for the pathogenicity. This is one of the new investments we made that are very specifically related to COVID. Very early in the company, I would say, and so, but they're moving very, very quickly if anyone's interested in, in reaching out to them. A company that's an indie bio company that we're also investors in is a company called Prelis. And this is, I use as an example of a company that has pivoted what they do into working in, in COVID. So this is a pretty interesting tissue and organoid engineering company creating 3D scaffolds for a variety of, of tissue structures. They actually have a product in the market that's being used for in basic science research around tumor xenografts and, and getting the, the micro tumor microenvironment the way that the researchers desire. But the larger vision was actually the 3D printing and engineering of solid organs, including large vessels, kidney nephrons, liver lobules, and even lungs, which lungs, I, it actually turns out, may be relevant to COVID as well if there are long-term impacts on pulmonary function. But as the pandemic appeared, the whole team wanted to be, of course, like many people, they were strongly motivated to try to work on COVID. And they said, hey, by the way, we've already shown that we can engineer ex vivo lymph nodes and deployed that against Zika, and well, not deployed, but show that they could build anti uh, neutralizing antibodies against Zika, at least in, in a preclinical setting. And they announced in May the earliest month that they have 300 different antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 spike proteins S1 and N S2 in their derived from a wide array of these synthetic or lymph nodes. I'm pretty excited about the long-term opportunity in some other areas, something called IVIG, which is basically currently it's pooled antibodies from donors that's used for a wide range of conditions, both people that are immune deficient, but also those who are actually have autoimmunity. And it's very supply limited in places like China. There's no, actually no IVIG because they don't have the collection and distribution ability. But that's, I think, an interesting opportunity in the, in the future of the company, not only beyond, not only relevant to, to COVID-19, but uh, future epidemics, but even just general, generalized health and well-being. The last thing that I, I want to highlight is that we have actually several investments in various models of healthcare delivery. I know much of the SOSV Indie Bio focus is on physical technology of various kinds, but of course, delivery channels is an important part of actually getting this technology into the hands of people because it's not technology for the sake of technology, it's technology in this case to improve health and well-being. And certainly the pandemic has accelerated adoption of approaches to healthcare delivery like telemedicine. So Ginger is a telemedicine company. It's paid for, supported by employers. As may not be surprising, they had a very increased demand. There's a Washington Times article about the rise of anxiety and depression, particularly among the nations impoverished. It's a great example of where the tailwind supporting reimbursement in healthcare delivery through telemedicine, I think will enable much better access to care and access to these technologies that we, 50 Year and SOSB, are, are helping support. Another approach to mental health is a company that we have that was mentioned, and I'll just highlight it again, Flow Neuroscience, that it's, it's got C markets for sale in Europe. Um, it's transcranial electric stimulation for anxiety and depression. And I think of that as a great opportunity to deploy a technology that otherwise, it's an analog to what's called transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a big CapEx device, and you have to go into a clinic and, and have it done. This is an at-home device, very cheap. Amortized across a year, it's it's comparable to, to even generic pharmacotherapy for these conditions, and it seems to be about as effective in clinical trials. So those are just a few areas. We are continuously looking for interesting new projects to invest and partner with. 
we have already done several investments during shelter in place with teams that I've never met in person. So we're, we're continuing to look at things, continuing to make investments and happy to talk about any of the other companies working in the space. Although I guess with the caveat that it's such a fast moving area that many of the companies may have been, uh, are making massive progress and I may not be up to date on, on their most current results. Thank you very much, Alex. It's very interesting, uh, particularly the ideas around accessibility of some of these technologies and how they might affect healthcare going forward. Next, we have June Axup, a partner at, at SOSB and CSO at IndieBio, the flagship San Francisco program. Thanks, Julie, and thanks everyone for attending today. Real fast, so SOSB is our parent VC firm, and uh, IndieBio is one of the accelerators. So we focus on pre-seed acceleration of companies in all kinds of different areas, from hacks with hardware, and that IndieBio is specifically for, for biotech, and we're both in San Francisco and New York now. A little bit of background, we've been around for five years, invested in 136 companies all across the globe, and we're extremely excited that we have a lot of female founders in our portfolio as well. And so as the pandemic hit, you know, a lot of themes were already touched around diagnostics, treatment, and prevention. Of course, the first level is diagnostic because that that was definitely the, the biggest issue and especially the biggest issue in the U.S. We had one company called Casper Biotech that was based out of Argentina, but as the pandemic hit, they came to San Francisco to continue their work in pushing forth a CRISPR diagnostic for COVID-2. It is point of care. It is a paper strip, so it's extremely cheap, and they are currently applying for their EAU right now. On the other side of diagnostics as well, you know, a lot of it is just brute force, getting it done. Um, and we were thrilled to see a couple of our founders um, in, in other companies come together to create a lab. And the idea of Renegade Bio is to make a, a lab that is for the community so that people can just pay uh, and donate into, um, into getting a test early. So they started in San Francisco um, right about early March and within a couple of weeks, ramped up to 20 people. They are now in, in New York as well, helping with the efforts in New York since that's been much more pressing. And uh, so we've been really excited to help spring up a lab that is, is just doing testing. And um, they have some innovations around decreasing the time to do the lab test. But in other ways, they're just trying to high throughput, also using Opentrons a little bit as well. From the therapeutics side, um, there, you know, there was mentioned that there's new drugs being developed. There's a lot of repurposed drugs being reevaluated. I think the repurposed drugs is definitely going to be the more near term, whereas coming up with a new drug from scratch is going to probably take longer even though a lot of these trial windows have been accelerated. So one company called ANA that we invested in right after COVID started was a compound called nicosamide that is actually an anti-worm treatment. Um, it is very safe, but in recent studies, they've started seeing that it was effective against a bunch of different types of viruses, including Zika and SARS. So they thought that this might actually be a good thing to test on COVID as well. So they are starting their clinical trials um, in the next couple of months. Prolis was already mentioned, uh, so I don't have to mention it again. Lastly, on the side of prevention, we have just invested in a company out of IndieBio New York called Halamine that is based a way to stabilize chlorine onto surfaces. It actually causes it to last on surfaces for up to 30 days with one spray versus having to spray constantly. So thinking about hospitals in the home in the future that we can just constantly decontaminate our space and prevent transmission. 
Alex mentioned a little bit of this too, of distribution and hospital systems. One of our companies called Smart Steward originally was deploying a software to track outbreaks of antibiotic resistance within nursing homes and hospitals. Of course, as COVID hit, this technology was perfectly adaptable to COVID. And um, as we know, there's been many nursing home outbreaks that having software to help manage and try to detect early outbreaks uh, was very critical. So they are already deploying into nursing homes as fast as they can. So that is just a really quick overview of about six of our companies. We have a bunch of other alumni working on testing blood markers to try to find new solutions or try to figure out how to triage people between people who have severe cases versus asymptomatic, novel compounds being made. And uh, over the SOSV portfolio, we have over 42 companies and growing who have pivoted and doing various things in the COVID space. And so those can be found on our website. Last, I just want to leave with a couple of thoughts is that one, I think the biotech renaissance is extremely strong and uh, and not just biotech, but also tech and uh, both software and hardware. You see that everyone's kind of up in arms and um, to, to try to help with this. And that's been really exciting. I think the appreciation for bio- biotech and people's knowledge and willingness to learn about biotech during this time has been amazing. Um, and so some some thoughts about investing in the space. There are so many unknowns. I feel like every week there's something new happening. Um, but one of the best ways to do this is I think early stage investors actually have a lot of advantages and should be more active because you're giving out such smaller checks and that you can distribute this across more companies in different areas. And so with our portfolio of 136 companies, we were just so excited to see all kinds of different companies tackling COVID at different ways. And every time there's a new news article, like, oh, there's cytokine storm is a big problem. Then like several of our companies working on cytokine storms, they're jumping in and seeing how they can fit and, and what kind of knowledge can be shared there. Seth addressed this a little bit too. It's like, you know, at this time of urgency, do you go for the impact slash philanthropy sometimes versus continue the returns on investment that VCs normally do? Um, can Does it have to be a compromise of one or the other? Can you find somewhere within the spectrum or can it be both? Um, uh, is the pandemic an ongoing investable thesis now? Uh, you know, so, some people will say no, and that maybe it's not a good thing to invest in. Others might think, well, you know, we're having more and more pandemics, more and more outbreaks. And that means that we are going to have to change our investing thesis to, to maybe account for some of these. And then thinking beyond pandemic, you know, climate change is essentially kind of a pandemic. So how does that change your view of what you want to invest in? Um, and of course, technology now is deeply impacted into society. We can see that, you know, with a serological antibody test, people are talking about, how do we go back to work? Do we have to have a stamp of approval in order to even go back to work? And that's affecting the economy, our politics, and also equality. Even when we get a vaccine, how is it going to be distributed? Do we have the manufacturing capacity to make sure that everyone in the world is is able to equally get this vaccine? This whole experience has been very humbling reminder that we need to keep evolving. We as firms, as people, we have to stay nimble. We can't like set in our ways and we have to be on our feet all the time. With that, uh, let's go back to the panel. This is really great. Thank you, Alex and Seth and June. Those were really great overviews of the different ways that early venture can support the different technologies that are necessary. We'll start with uh, what differentiated companies that you decided to invest in, given that IndieBio has a program that runs cyclically. June, how did you decide? What was the strategy on how to invest in the companies that you chose to invest in? 
Yeah. So several of the companies I mentioned are alumni that, uh, so like Prelis, that have pivoted into something different. And Casper was something that um, they were already doing the diagnostics test, but for other infectious diseases. And then we added in additional funding to help them support their COVID work. Um, other companies have been somewhat opportunistic. So so it, it is um, kind of long, what Seth said, like sometimes there are some philanthropic, uh, more philanthropic ideas of like this actually could move the needle. Therefore, it's something worth putting some money in. So it has changed our model of exactly what we are doing. And this is a little bit more on the broader firm that we have been doing some more opportunistic investments. And I think the main criteria is that it has to have an impact right now, um, because there are you know tons and tons of companies, tons and tons of technologies out there that probably would be great in six months to a year, but we don't know what that landscape is going to look like. And you know those are things that maybe in six months to a year, we would want to then invest in. And that's slightly different than perhaps your everyday strategies. Absolutely. Alex, you mentioned that several companies had pivoted, some of whom uh, you weren't even sure had the capability to address COVID. How risky is that for the companies? And how do you see that playing out as COVID recedes and becomes part of, let's say, endemic disease that we deal with on an annual or uh, maybe just not as uh, urgent of a basis? It varies quite a bit from company to company. So it's very context dependent, at, you know, at a high level we would want strategically there to be a reason that the direction that they're changing will have some long-term opportunity that is unlocked by that effort. And so Prelis is a great example of, you know, so I highlighted their shift from being just, you know, not, not just, I mean, they're a pretty impressive company, a tissue engineering company to producing therapeutic antibodies is an example of one where therapeutic antibodies have lots of potential long-term value. And so their ability to get better at that, ability to deploy those is just a, you know, a long-term good strategic positioning for the company. Other companies which may respond or anticipate future changes in, in subtly different ways, much of the group here invests in diagnostic technologies. And there have been challenges in how you get paid for those diagnostic technologies. You know, an example is Palmetto, the, the big you know, group that dis, dis, determines what Medicare reimburses. Uh, in, in May of 2017, stopped reimbursing for sequencing panels or upper respiratory infections. There are multiplex panels. You do swab and you can say which virus you have. And that was, you know, they stopped paying for that. Now, there are, that's likely going to change and be reversed. And there's going to be a lot of incentive, um, both because the ability to deploy that technology will become cheaper, uh, easier to deploy. People will get a lot more experience with it. We'll understand how to use it to change care and people will want it. Again, you have to take risks here with any decision and you might close up other opportunities. I do think there are opportunities for specific tailwinds in how healthcare is delivered that may unlock opportunities for some of these companies to have a, a successful business in ways that they, they wouldn't in the past. You know, there's a lot of resistance to various at-home testing, various kinds of point-of-care diagnostics, very hard to get paid. And that landscape's changing. I can't anticipate, you know, if I could predict the future, I'd be much better at my job. And we're entering into, you know, a new election cycle, and that may change exactly both the federal appetite for various kinds of, of models. The other thing I'd note is that in the current pandemic, insurance companies in the fee-for-service world are actually making a lot of money because all the non-emergency procedures that they would have to pay for are not happening. All these incued procedures may suddenly happen and the medical loss ratios may go topsy-turvy for those payers. The flip side, though, is a lot of providers that have been resistant to capitated payment models. You know, uh, Seth mentioned Kaiser. Uh, if you if you have been resistant to capitated payments because you wanted fee-for-service because you thought that was how you'd make more money, now you're not making any money. 
and you wish a lot that you had capitated model because then you'd have some buffering for these variations in utilization. And so I think that may drive many of the groups that were resistant to capitated models towards basically pay for outcome, which in general would benefit most of the technology and companies that we invest in because we're investing in outcomes and technology that improves lives, not necessarily particularly CPT codes. And so in general, I think there are some good opportunities that even if we're not really anchored on COVID, strategically, you can move in a direction that may be long-term benefit for basically all the portfolio companies that we've described. A lot of good points made in a short period of time. And Seth, thank you for sharing the origin story of Kaiser Permanente. I wasn't aware of that. That was very interesting. You had mentioned also a number of companies that pivoted. And I wonder if you are still looking at new investment opportunities at 50 years. And if you are continuing to look for, let's say, new companies that have tech that you haven't invested in, or if there's something that you wanted to find that you would like to invest in, for example. Yeah, I mean, so absolutely we are. So, you know, with the companies we've supported to date, we went to our existing portfolio companies and we basically said, if you think you have a solution here, we will give you money. And so we actually offered a $25,000 uncapped note to all of our portfolio companies if they thought they had any solution that could potentially address it, right? We weren't even really digging into the solution. We were saying, hey, we already trust you. We know you. Here's some basically free money, which an uncapped note is essentially to go accelerate your solution, get it, get it launched. And then, you know, in a few cases where they really need a lot more capital to deploy their solution, we had a deeper conversation and, and gave them more. We're also super excited to fund, you know, companies that are not existing in our portfolio to date uh, that have solutions. You know, I think we we don't want to fund a solution that is a COVID solution and a COVID solution only, right? Because I think that would be a really tough thing to build a business around. But the vast majority of things that are addressing this pandemic likely have a lot of applications outside the pandemic, right? Either because you're building infrastructure that you can then point to another problem after this hopefully goes away at some point soon. And so, you know, we think that there will be companies that bring the development of vaccines down from, you know, years to months because of this pandemic. There will be some company that figures out how to repurpose drugs and takes that discovery process down from months to weeks because of this pandemic. And so, again, that World War II infrastructure that was built that that lasted past the war, we think there's a lot of opportunity for companies to build things that directly address this that are bringing us value for a long time. And so in terms of things we would love to see, I think testing is not there yet. We would love to see a, a great solution to, to at-home testing. My hunch is that this probably involves some sort of CRISPR diagnostic. I think that Feng Zhang at the Broad has been doing excellent work around this. Uh, Devna at the IGI has been doing great work. CRISPR is perfect for this because it has sequence specificity and therefore can be programmed like very specifically and easily. I think uh, Jim Collins at the Wies has also been doing some really cool work on CRISPR diagnostics. You know, this would obviously need to be paired with with some sort of at-home workflow that was both very, very simple for the user and also synced in with some sort of mobile device to turn into a diagnostic. The FDA, thankfully, has sort of said that they're excited about those sorts of things. If I had to name one thing that we would be super jazzed to support, uh, it would probably be that. One more. We're going to do like a fire round. I'm just going to ask everyone in 30 seconds, the biggest challenge that you've found in finding companies um, to invest in. And that could be a number of things from founder expertise to the number of applications to, uh, you know, finding the right puzzle piece for the problem. Uh, And so we'll we'll go back to June um, to start. I think thinking about deployment and scaling, because I think a lot of technologies that we see are super early and that getting to that regulatory path, getting to just manufacturing the device or, or something is is going to be a challenge. So finding people who kind of have that a little bit further view of how to do that. Excellent. Yes, scaling is definitely uh, a big challenge. Alex? 
I would say in the current environment, there is a lot of back channel conversation that is not happening. So I'm not going to as many events where there's a cocktail hour where I talk to some people and something interesting highlighted, frankly. And, and that's often where, you know, a new paper is highlighted or, you know, uh, an interesting entrepreneur I meet and I introduce two people together, someone who's good at X and someone who's Y, and there's a, some synergy. And that's harder to do in this environment. It's been harder to, I think, find some of those opportunities for synthesis and identifying some new companies that I might otherwise not see, but we're trying, you know, using other for other other media. Right. Uh, absolutely. I think everyone feels the challenge of making those connections in this virtual environment. Uh, and Seth? Huge plus one to what Alex just said. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's, uh, it's huge. Um, but in terms of like COVID specific solutions, you know, I think there are a lot of companies that are solving real problems in this pandemic, but that are also solvable by a lot of other companies. And so this is, of course, applies to all startups. Like, you know, we always want to know that you can sort of uniquely solve something because if you can't uniquely solve it, it's really hard to capture value and then build a big organization. And again, um, you know, we want to see things that though they're contributing to this pandemic, there's some infrastructure being built that will outlast the pandemic and, and add value to the next epidemic or to other health problems or, or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. To build on that huge chart uh, that June showed us of uh, increasing pandemics being prepared for SARS-3, right? Well, I'd like to take a moment to thank all of you for preparing those wonderful presentations and answering these questions. Thank you to all the attendees, especially those who submitted some of these questions, which I incorporated into the Q&A session. And thank you to Ben for bringing together this wonderful panel. Thanks, everyone, for making time. This might be calling for a second part sometime in the future. Uh, let us know your feedback and what you'd like to hear. And I think we might be organizing uh, some other events very soon. And if people who are attendees want to go into the public space and tweet any questions or, or chat about something or highlight a link to a paper that they think you know investors should be aware of because there's an interesting opportunity that either to address the pandemic technically or, or whatever, as much as we can um, open source discussion, I would be very supportive and I'll try to respond or at least, you know, read stuff. And, and I assume the other participants are nodding would do the same. That's a very kind suggestion. And uh, I think it's great also to be able to possibly extend the conversation beyond this kind of time slotted sequence. Thank you to everyone. Thanks for listening. For more info about this event, check the description or a summary on Medium on SOSV's YouTube channel or SlideShare account. Subscribe now for future episodes, follow us on Twitter at Lab2Market and at SOSV, or visit our other podcasts, Designing Science on Biology and China Startup Pulse on Asia Cross-Border Internet.